Just stop it. The run-of-the-mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk to someone else, an industry leader who has steered off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Today's guest has been disrupting about a quarter of a century. I've always wanted to say that. (laughs) He's a global public policy director. He's a subject matter expert in blockchain ESG and information security cybersecurity, commercial blockchain development and enterprise transformation, and he's a certified cryptocurrency investigator. This man has mad skills. We're talking to him today because as a public policy director, he's responsible for informing lawmakers of the latest research and innovation. Why is this important? Well, there's a hyper-focus in the media on speculation, and this affects lawmakers erroneously. We all know that lawmakers work backwards and think that what's published is public opinion, so they make their decisions based off of this, and that can be very dangerous. His disruption is to look at blockchain differently and look at the integrity of the data. Coming to us live from Miami, Florida, please welcome our disruptor, Brian Doherty. Thank you, KJ. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right, so let's get into this. There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of confusion, fixed ideas, false data, misunderstandings, misunderstood words, I think is the root of this, right? Yeah. On blockchain, cryptocurrencies, what's the difference, yada, 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 right? Yes. It's a great way to manipulate people if they don't know it. And it's a great way to empower people if they do. But before we get into that, What is your main ingredient for disruption? Really, the main ingredient has been the original Bitcoin white paper by Satoshi Nakamoto. It really highlights an honest network that's incentivized to, you know, provide real-world value through microtransactions and data security. And through that technology, we've been able to realize some of the missteps that have happened since its release in 2009 and kind of revert back to that original protocol, which Satoshi Nakamoto once said could scale well beyond the likes of Visa from day one. We haven't seen that happen until just recently when we've reverted back to that protocol. And now we have the scalability, the security of the network, and the ability to really start utilizing Bitcoin for what it was originally purposed for, which was a system, a peer-to-peer cash payment system. However, that system also includes the fusion of data and finance. And that's where the name Bitcoin comes from. Bit, which is referring to data, and coin, which is referring to the finance. It's this fusion of data and finance that was not there during the creation of today's internet, which has been just this hodgepodge of technologies that have been stacked onto each other, but have never really had a native token to allow payment 
systems and heavily required on third parties to facilitate that trade. And as we can, as we know today, these huge honeypots of information have become uh, targets for all sorts of different types of attacks and data breaches and has a great deal of impact on just not only a company's reputation and their bottom line, but their employees and their customers' data ending up on the dark web today. So to answer your question, it really has been this scalable blockchain technology that allows us to go from the big data era to this extreme data era with billions of smart devices and IoT devices that really require security and the ability to tear down data silos securely. You have to be really curious in order to go through all that, right? Um, And I think that's a very interesting character as a disruptor. Because most people don't know what you've just said. They don't know that the internet is this hodgepodge of data. One thing built on the other thing built on the other thing. It's like a, it's like an application gone wild, right? They don't know that. They don't know the definition of Bitcoin. I didn't know that. And I actually have Satoshi's paper on my kitchen table (laughs) because I promised I would read that and have a discussion at the, at the dinner table (laughs) about this. Can you? Back up a little bit. Let's talk about the status quo. All right. Let's talk about the, what would you categorize the current status quo of blockchain today and Bitcoin in terms of its use, people understanding it, what it really is? Yeah, I would say that we are, there are very few that really understand the original intent of blockchain. It was created back in the 80s you know one of the creators is scott stornetta and they created blockchain to increase the attestation of say digital files right because we started sharing many more digital files and you wanted to know where the provenance of those and it wasn't a perfect system at the time but as it grew and then turned into bitcoin through satoshi nakamoto's work it was highly misunderstood at the time and it still is and like i said um really where we're at is just on the surface of what the technology may provide. Many people look at it as something in the future, like, oh, we can do this in the future and we can use blockchain here in the future. And that's been the problem. It's always been in the future. And so a lot of people don't see blockchain as a solution. They see it as just a technology looking for a problem. And unfortunately, while they look for these solutions, they've highlighted the the least important aspect of this technology, which are the tokens. And tokens only allow you to access the underlying technology, which are smart contracts, automation, data integrity, data storage, even the computational power of using the Bitcoin network to analyze data. But we're just focused on these tokens that really are speculative in nature, are primarily a financial instrument, right? And that are bring out the worst of people really and and whether that's the scammers or people's own personal ideas that there's a shortcut in life to where if i buy this token it's going to go up in price because other people are buying this token or because 
because of a marketing ploy or because of something else. Many people have been hurt by that. I mean, we've recently seen Luna go to zero and that's a stable coin that was pegged, billions of dollars gone. And then just two weeks later, you know, we're, we're going to come up with Luna 2.0 and more people are sinking money into it. And it's really part of the issue because of, like you said in the beginning, this super hyper focus on the crypto casino rather than utilizing <laughs> this technology to a apply to real world problems. And one thing I like to relate people to that are just kind of coming into this space is there really is no need for 10,000 blockchains, right? So we see so many, right? Every day there's a new blockchain or 10 of them. And whether they're called something Sushi or Panda Bear Coin or KJ Coin, right? Like ultimately these are just kind of copy and paste type of projects that really have no viability, no investment. They don't really aim to solve a problem. They're really aiming just to capture speculation. But the reality is if we were able to go back to 2009 and understand that white paper more intimately and had maybe better chance to look at some of the forum posts of Satoshi Nakamoto and, and others in that community early on, we'd noticed that there were some things that occurred throughout Bitcoin's history that were core changes to its incentive mechanisms. And I'll give you an example, and this is why many people misunderstand the technology today. Originally, Bitcoin was launched with a one megabit block limit. That means every 10 minutes, a one megabyte block full of transactions will be processed, right? It will be found by a transaction processor or miner, and you know they will process that block of transactions, validate them. Well, that one megabyte block was really only supposed to be there early on to prevent spamming the network. Didn't really have a lot of transaction processors. You, you know, they were just worried to make sure that the system didn't fall in on itself. But it was never really meant to stay at one megabyte. And like I said before, when the system was released, the author predominantly said that this could scale that day well beyond the likes of Visa. Well, the only thing really holding it back was this one megabit limit. But the developers of BTC, right, Bitcoin BTC, because there are various proof of work blockchains that are based on BTC or Bitcoin, right, that originate, that all share the original Genesis block. And so, so they're all just different forks of the original protocol. And the one that's most people talk about, the one that everybody kind of speculates about, BTC, is the three-letter ticker. That one, I think it's at 24,000 today. They claim it's a store of value, right? They claim that it does, it's digital gold, right? And that you just hold on to it and it's going to go up in price. Well, it does seven transactions per second. Unfortunately, it's become the benchmark for Bitcoin as far as what proof of work technology provides. And whether it's Cambridge University that highlights the energy consumption of Bitcoin, which I'll admit is absolutely gross, right? It is I mean, gross. I mean, it is. yeah. 1,200. And it's because of the failure of scaling. Right. So seven transactions per second. If we were all sending global email, right, at seven transactions would per never. second, nobody yeah. would get an email at all. Right. And so if you're telling me that somebody's paying $24,000 for a token, right, just we're talking about the token that 
it does seven transactions per second. You cannot utilize it for data. It's cheaper to use Venmo, PayPal, or MasterCard to send money. Then what are we really talking about here? Why are we wasting any energy on it? And Bitcoin BTC is not the only one that does that. Ethereum's the same way. You're you're still talking about 30 transactions per second on a good day, right? Depending on how many crypto kitties are born. And the reality even for data there is it's too expensive because they haven't scaled. And many of the NFTs that people are buying are just really just a link to an Amazon server where that JPEG exists. And when they stop paying for that server fee, guess what? Your NFT that you own is just a link. That's all you have in a transaction. So there's so much misunderstanding about just the technology in general. And because of that early misunderstanding of maintaining one megabit blocks, it incentivized others to find ways to scale other ways. And so now we see that all the, all the time with the Lightning Network or these off-chain solutions or moving to a different consensus mechanism. But the reality is any of those decisions really draw back from the benefits of what blockchain or Bitcoin specifically provides, which is this very secure, resilient system for data in, you know, immutability. And whether that data is financial transactions or whether it's IoT or or just uh, network hash logs, right? I mean, all of that data can be attested to and stored in perpetuity. And when we're looking at the problems of what we have today, whether it's ESG related, right, where enterprises are being required to attest to their CO2 footprint, well, how do they do that? If you're putting in the cloud that data can change, anybody can change it. So again, we come back to that digital fingerprint and anybody can have multiple database, private databases. So it's not exactly a perfect solution there. So by using a public permissionless blockchain, now you can obfuscate that data from the public, but you have a reasonable way to show that the data has never changed. And when it comes to greenwashing and coming to utilizing IoT to actually record this raw data coming in, now you can really show that actual footprint if need be. Yeah, it's so very interesting that you talk about this, but you know, I, I love the term cryptocurrency. And you talk about no crypto casino. Crypto, crypto casino. casino yeah. And you talk about the this focus on the token. I have seen this in many different industries. You have people that have something that has a lot of terminology they have to learn a lot of words they have to clear up, right? And they tend to go down to the irreducible minimum and focus on something that they can grasp onto and something that they have some sort of reality with based off of what they do know, right? And yeah. so I do believe that this focused aspect on the crypto casino, the token is part of that and not really realizing this immutability of, data that you're talking about and they we all do i mean i say they but we all do look okay this could be done in the future this could be done in the future but there's things that can be done now now right that should yeah. be done now you have to advise lawmakers right mm -hmm. and lawmakers typically get things on their radar when there's trouble happening right I've known by working with many lawmakers in the aspect of communications and PR is that they consider what is published in the news public opinion. 
and even erroneously lobbyists and so forth, and even lawmakers, they know this is erroneous. But once it gets published and out there, because they are beholden to the public and because they need to be reelected, they work very reactively on this, right? And then they backtrack and want to find, okay, let's get more data about this and how can we fix this? But even then they try to short circuit it to something that they can understand. How do you dumb it down for them so that they understand and make the right decisions? It's a process. These are usually quick meetings, 30 minute meetings. Sometimes it's with their, just their staffers, right? And you really have to provide a pretty good punch there to get them to understand what I have on my benefit is I'm not talking about financial instrument just solely or speculation or any of that. But one of the things that I found that was very helpful and you kind of highlighted the reason why is I created a framework that, you know, any policymaker, government body can kind of look and abstract these very difficult and very technological terms and concepts and and kind of remove that while still being able to apply these general concepts of words they understand, right, and apply them to all of these technologies rather than just sort of being this reactive because As you mentioned, when you have consumer protection issues, specifically with NFTs and cryptocurrencies, right, and they are very reactive, well, the problem is the bill doesn't start with just some language of we're going to protect this group here or there. The bill starts with definitions, Right. So you have to start. I'm so defining. glad you said that. Yeah. You start so de- glad you said that. defining what these things, these things are. And that's where it's, if you're not having these conversations, then it's very difficult, like you said, to go back and unwind these things. And when you look at something like New York State, where they've just recently passed the moratorium, right? And I am an advocate of them taking an opportunity where they're going to use two years to study these technologies. But the problem relies on this understanding that is promulgated by the media and researchers where they only look at BTC as this benchmark of Bitcoin, right? As far as the power consumption. And when there are other proof of work examples that are available like Bitcoin SV or BSV, the difference in CO2 is between 1,200 kilograms of CO2 per transaction with Bitcoin, BTC, and two less than two kilograms of CO2 per transaction with BSV. But getting them to like understand that different concept or that there are multiple protocols of Bitcoin has been difficult, right? Because there is only that focus on BTC. But going back to the definitions, you know, that's where all of this future legislation resides, right? Is defining what a, a blockchain is versus a cryptocurrency, because blockchain is much larger than just the word blockchain. There's private permissioned blockchains, there's public permissionless blockchains, there's hybrids of them. And the way I look at it, and this kind of relates back to that original or the last question is where we have this proliferation of 10,000 blockchains, we're talking about ultimately a universal source of truth, right? How can you have 10,000 universal source of truth? How, How many internets do we have today? We have one, right? And I've I firmly believe that with blockchain and being this universal source of truth, it's the one that scales 
the largest to be able to provide the greatest amount of utility and efficiency and productivity as an innovative technology. And where they're making these definitions now or even making legislative notions like the moratorium in New York, well, that puts a predictable that puts New York residents and constituents and, and business owners in New York, specifically those in the mining industry, in kind of a, a tough predicament because now you're requiring nothing less than 100% renewable energy for an emerging technology, whereas we don't do that with any other industry in the world, right? Like even automobile uh, manufacturers have goals that they, you know, emissions goals that they set and and try to self-regulate and meet and beat. And I think that this is the same type of thing. Unfortunately, there's just such a hard line to kind of get past the whole cryptocurrency aspect where they see the utility. <laughs> well, that's been promulgated by the media. Yeah, well, where they see the utility of what this can do as providing a competitive advantage for their region, for their state, right? Or for, and that's where it really comes into, because uh, again, at the lowest common denominator, we're talking about data integrity. And that's one of the greatest problems when I was out being a digital transformation consultant and speaking about every different type of technology to enterprises. Every CISO that I spoke with or C-level exec, cybersecurity was their number one concern. It was the number one thing they wanted to spend money on. And that's what really got me into this industry was back in 2016, realizing after hearing Dr. Craig Rice speak about the scaling and enterprise utility of blockchain beyond what had been done or spoken about before, it really connected to where wow, we can really change even the detection aspect of a network breach. And it's really pushed me forward to develop applications, even on my own and with our team to solve these issues. Because when I do speak to politicians, their first question is, okay, who's, what are you building, right? Who's building it? And if you say XYZ company, this company, that company, they did this, well, I've never heard of them. So I'm very proud just over the last three months of actually four months of working in collaboration with IBM to create a new suite of cybersecurity tools that are based on the NIST cybersecurity framework that are empowered by a sustainable, scalable, public permissionless blockchain that will mitigate that detection time from a network breach, which it is today about 212 days to near instant. I almost believe that your whole industry would even think that's too good to be true. I mean, hats off to you and hats off to IBM, but it's almost like the cutting edge and the bleeding edge. And then it's like, whoa, that 212 days to like near instantaneous is almost like you can't believe it. But that is the power of blockchain, right? It really is, right? And you have something that provides entire infrastructure that allows us that we can with almost 100% assuredly know that the data that was placed on chain has not changed any point of its lifetime. Yeah, that's key because people don't realize how much the data is vulnerable, can change, does change. Yeah, and we're talking about one of the second oldest businesses in the world, which is timestamping. Timestamping is key to almost every enterprise component at this point. Interesting. Well, what are all of, like you say, you know, people look at blockchain as the future. Oh, this could happen, this can, but what are the things that can be done now? I know what's happening with 
you're working out with IBM. But what are some of the other things people don't even realize? Well, I think where the focus is on, say, board ape NFTs and those type of things now, really the non-fungible token or the NFT is really much more powerful than just providing a photo. We're seeing some of the ideas of people, of whether it's putting, utilizing it for real estate or utilizing it for provenance or digital twins. That's great. I think those are utility type applications. And we're utilizing NFTs from everything from ticketing, where I'm a huge music buff. And I remember the days when I could buy albums and I, I could open those albums up and go through and read the, the lyrics and see the artwork right from the band. And then, yeah. oof, here comes digital music and you lost all that. I've got tickets that I saved from concerts when I was younger that I remember, you know, that I have proudly on my mantle. And now you don't really get to keep those keepsakes. So imagine being able to utilize or purchase a ticket, reducing secondary fraud, right? Reducing price gouging. So you're solving major issues, but you're also providing an intimate direct connection from the artist or the group or the con, you know, whomever with the fan. And you're allowing them to have a collectible. And you know what? You that collectible can be turned into all sorts of marketing and advertising and media power on both sides of that token. And whether that's because I went to five concerts and I have five tickets, I'm able to go to a super fan store and get something free or some gear that somebody else doesn't have. And that's the kind of entertainment side. I am like the biggest fan of the most boring stuff, right? So <laughs> well, you're I love like, the entertainment side. I think yeah, I mean, can it's all fun. really relate to that for sure. Yeah the, yeah, the metaverse. I mean, we're working with projects where you can drop augmented reality products right in front of a gro your grocery store. And they may have a signature dish that they want you to make that night. And they offer you five coupons that you collect and redeem right at the store, right? I mean... Those are things that we're working on now, but even beyond that. So tell when, me about the boring stuff. Cause I'm a nerd on that too. Okay. You're going to love these. <laughs> yeah. right? So, I mean, we look at some of the major problems, right? That's what blockchain is, can be. Well, that was, was intended to do, right? Right. Real to world solve problem. the problem. Yes. And one of the big problems that we have are interchange fees. Right. I mean, uh, there's not a store that any consumer that doesn't complain that you're paying three to 5% and all these extra fees and it's a lot and these fees continually go up. There's a lot of negotiation around them. Well, the reason that we have those fees is because you require a trusted third party, right? You're requiring some other person to process those transactions. But I mean, the reality of the situation is we can utilize this technology, even the same tokens that people are freaking out about that have no real utility or value. You could provide that value as a, a loyalty, as you for shopping within Walmart, utilizing a scalable blockchain. Now you can provide, you know, this loyalty membership where the, the actual retailer is the one that's processing and settling those transactions at a fraction of a penny, rather than having to worry about paying interchange fees, paying or being, or having one of the callbacks as far as somebody saying they didn't purchase it and then them getting stuck with it. But now think about, okay, that's cool, right? We can lower some of our interchange costs for retailers and that may be coming back to consumers, but how can we speed up and understand some of the logistics and pro 
issues that we have today. Well, we can use that same time at that same point of sale, notify an advertiser that his coupon's been redeemed. And he now has analytics that he can go back and say, hey, this is a good campaign. We need to continue it or we need to do something else, right? Well, you can notify the distributor of the real-time products that are being, being sold so that way he knows what to bring to you, right? Or he knows how best, what best products that you're going to be needing on that next delivery. Or you can share that with the manufacturer who's looking for this analytical data, right? Of oh, how are our products doing? But they receive this data three, four, five months later, but now they can receive this in real time right at the point of sale. So we're working with large retailers now to really develop these type of systems that allow them to really facilitate the tearing down of data silos right, which is really something that prevents this coopetition is what I like to call it, or mm -hmm. co-elevation of companies, because we're, we're, we're beyond just uh, globalized anymore, right? So we're so, as we saw with COVID, that we're so reliant on everybody else in our value chain. Well, it'd be nice to be able to understand what's happening within that value chain. So you can take looking at a boat that just some guy caught a fish down there in, in the bay here, and you could literally post that fish on, on chain, take it to the distributor. He's going to share that. Now you have the weight, the time of catch, geolocation, and you'll follow that fish all the way through the processing of Maybe it ends up at a Miami sushi restaurant and that guy before he signs over for it is going to say, did it get stuck in the truck for three days? What was the weight when he caught it? What is the weight now? What was the temperature over these things? And this is all requires IoT and smart devices, smart cities, right? And when we're talking about accountability and again, data integrity and attestation and real world notifications, that's what this blockchain can provide is facilitating this automation and integrity and security that we just, we can't replicate in legacy systems because of the total requirement of a trusted third party. You're right. This begs the next question, okay? Because what you're talking about is integrity of data, transparency of data, right? And we mentioned before the internet just being like a hodgepodge of things that were built on, almost like an arbitrary built on an arbitrary built on an arbitrary, right? That just grows out of control. Now we have all these third-party verification people, vendors, companies, things like that, yeah. right? Who has a vested interest in blockchain not flourishing? Who does blockchain piss off? Because yeah. every disruption has something that comes in and changes the status quo and makes it better. And we don't have a need yeah. for these third-party verification companies. We don't have, we have transparency of things that are going on from point A to point B, right? So answer that question for me, because that's yeah. A good so one. I mean, you could imagine. Yeah, it's a great question. So the you know you can imagine from what I just shared about the whole concept of interchange that your Mastercard, your Visa, these guys are like, wait a minute. And you actually see from whether it's the patents that they filed over the last ten years in blockchain, or whether it's some of the companies that they've kind of aligned themselves to that are very close to BTC. And then you you do wonder why, well, geez, if it could scale beyond the likes of Visa back then in 2009, why is this group so closely related with MasterCard and it only does one megabit, seven transactions mm -hmm. per second? 
right? And the fees are so high and it can't mm-hmm. scale. Well, just, something doesn't add up there, right? So I definitely ask people to kick the tires on that concept. But, um, <laughs> you know, ultimately- You're a troublemaker, aren't you? <laughs> maybe, you know, but ultimately, like, you know, we do a lot in the with the entertainment industry. Honestly, musicians are some of the most beat down content. Taking advantage of- <sighs> They you know, get lucky. They, they have get, so many know, vampires around them. So, you know, yeah. we see these type of industries that have been concentrated in the hands of three three large companies or six large companies, right? And they own everything in between that. And unfortunately, you could give a three sixty deal, right, as a rap artist, and then you want to sell NFTs or you want to put your music out, and you don't own the rights to it. You don't even own the rights to yourself anymore. So this this really provides this content distribution network for them, where they Hallelujah. can monetize. Yeah, right. Hallelujah. This is a data I think artists can be artists and quit being what they, others want them to be. Yeah. I think we would see a lot more. I think we'd see better art. I'd see. Yeah. We, I think we'd see more ethical artists. I think we'd see people that rely on their individualism instead of having to agree to something in order to sell. I, agree, I think there's the ramifications of that are huge. Yeah, and it's not just in the music or entertainment industry. I mean, obviously, in film, you can disperse everything to the gaffer boy, the director and the producer and everybody in between real time compensation, because I look at this like I share the story a lot. When you think of the tab can, right, everybody back in the day, they used to have a pull can, then yeah. they had the tab can, and then they created another tab can. Well, when you when you think about that, the guy who created the original one to go out, away from the pull can, he had just he had the industry unlocked and all the beverage companies were vying to buy this patent from him. And instead he said, you know what, I, I'll provide it to all of you for a millionth of a penny. Him and his family have been receiving one millionth of a penny, right, from since they created it till this day and will in in perpetuity, perpetuity. right? And now when you think about that concept of one millionth of a penny, well, this is what I'm telling you as far as the data that you can share on something that's scalable like Bitcoin SV to where it's one one thousandth of a penny to add a kilobyte. So I could send you one penny today instantly, securely, and put some data into it, and you could get it right now. Now, think about that. When we're talking, we went back before, and we we were talking about the innovation of what Bitcoin is, or crypto, even cryptocurrencies. Well, if it, if it costs more than MasterCard or Venmo to send it, and granted, I can send a million dollars in PayPal or, or Bitcoin anywhere around the world, right? And it's going to, I could send it to you in bullion. I could probably make it there a day if I really wanted it to. So there's nothing magical about sending a million dollars or a thousand dollars or a hundred bucks. But sending a penny, can you send a penny any which way right now? I can send one right now. I mean, now it would too. cost me more than the penny. Yeah. And I can send-, send you a penny for one one thousandth of a penny. Yeah. Now, when you think about that innovation that's applicable today, like you asked me, what can be done today? I can send that to you today. I can tie data to that. Right now, when you think of some third world country, they're living on two to four dollars a month. And you know what? You give somebody 
be a smartphone and the ability to take a picture of the Ugandan sunset and post that on a blockchain empowered social media website like Twitch or Relay, Relasia or any of these other ones that exist. And now you not only own your data, but you're able to be monetize that data for yourself. Your data isn't being yeah. sold and profited by Facebook or YouTube or somebody, right? You're actually sharing this data on chain. You own it. It's in your wallet. You always have ownership of it. And somebody likes it. Somebody comments on these platforms. Guess what? You get paid. You get paid. You get paid. And And there you go. And it makes a better life and a growing middle class more accessible, right? So I guess I'm going to leave it up to the audience to think about who blockchain will piss off and who are the vested interests because- Blockchain typically makes things more ethical. I'm transparent and honest. And honesty is what that white paper that's sitting on your kitchen table, you notice that honesty is in that paper 17 times, right? There's a reason because- Really? Yeah, it's an honest- You know, I haven't read it yet. It's there. It's stapled. It's only three pages. People, just so you know, it's it's not a very long white paper. It's like three pages, eight and a half by 11, 10 font. Yeah, yeah, just get past all the math and formula stuff, unless you really like that stuff. Well, yeah, there, I mean, or try to have some semblance of understanding of it to get through it. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely... It's, Honesty's uh, in there seven times. So 17, 17 times, huh? Yeah, wow. 17 times. And he's like a mythical figure in the sense that nobody knows who he is, right? I have my own personal thoughts on that. I know that there's a great deal of people that would like to have Satoshi Nakamoto be this anonymous figure. And I think there's reasons why there are some anonymity around the figure. However, I've come to the belief of really looking at some of the people that have been in the space early on that are able to explain things that nobody understood. And I've really only come down to like one person. And ironically, he's was given the authorship of the white paper just two years ago. And he... Um, is one of the most pronounced cybersecurity specialists. His background is incredible for data scientists and cybersecurity and information security. And that was the original person that really connected the dots for me from what Bitcoin was meant to be to what we're able to do and see with it today in the lights of BSV. And that's Dr. Craig Wright. I think he is, I do think he played a significant, if not the major only role in the creation of Bitcoin, along with Hal Finney and others. When you start digging into his background, if you're Googling, you're going to get all sorts of people that will disagree with me. But I think if you, those that have more of a professional disposition about looking at information as objectively, We'll come to the conclusion that there's very few people that could speak on anything from NLOC time to the original op push code data codes that were included into the white paper, which highly advocate for IPv6 and just the this improvement upon TCP IP that we know today for the internet. So interesting. It's interesting. It makes it a little more romantic thinking that we have an anonymous figure that created this so altruistically and then left it <laughs> left it behind, right? Yeah, and I don't think it matters though, right? I don't it think it matters really, at all. Yeah, I don't think it really matters who created it. I think it matters how it's used and yeah. how it's understood. And I think for the most part, it's just been highly misunderstood, even by some of the most 
pronounced experts in this field. And going to the political advocacy that I do, it mainly revolves around the energy consumption of Bitcoin, where the reality is it's an argument that has been unfairly categorized due to BTC being in the news and and this beat in this benchmark for the proof of work protocol. But the reality is like, when you start to inject some of these other values of other change, you really start to see the argument doesn't even hold up as far as energy consumption. It really turns into energy utilization because just like the telegram or just like sending smoke signals that required some energy, right? And then going to the telegram (laughs) that required some energy, but you got a little bit more efficiency, a little bit more productivity. You got to go longer distance. Then we get up to the like the server and your iPhone, right? That's way more power in your pocket. You basically got a PC right there. But now that we're at blockchain, does it use more energy in some respects? Maybe, right? It depends on the utility. But this is the first time in history that we're able to utilize a technology that the more people utilize it, the lower the transactional footprint is. And with an unbounded block size where you can put infinite number of transactions, if it takes the same amount of energy to mine a Bitcoin BTC block as it does, say, a Bitcoin BSV block, well, if this has 10, 20, 30, 40 million transactions, and this is limited to 1,000 transactions, that CO2 footprint continues to go down. And, you know, that's when you start applying the utility of blockchain across every industry and sector, now you start to see that universal source source of truth come true and that upgraded replacement for today's internet. So, yeah, upgraded replacement for today's internet. It's like it needs its own massive PR campaign to override all the noise, all the fixed da- fixed data, like false data, fixed ideas to start to really educate people on this and get them to think newly and change their minds. Because what you're talking about are things that people do not know. And it's so vital that they do know and will accelerate the adoption of this technology now. I agree. And, you know, we, we've done a really good job from the standpoint of the Bitcoin Association, a nonprofit educative that's based in Zug, Switzerland that I work for. We've done a great job at really building out academies that are free for the public to take. And we've built out this curriculum and, and in the midst of sharing it with not just universities and colleges that are employing this and allowing students to take it, but even entire countries like India and Turkey, right? To where we're sharing this type of curriculum and even beyond. We'll share that, with America because, you know, America is falling behind in our <laughs> Yeah, it's available for us too. Education, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. It comes down to, again, we, we highlight specific universities here in the U.S. where there's blockchain experts that would totally disagree with everything I shared with you today. And so it does become very... It's a very tribal industry, right? And it's very difficult to tell somebody that, say, purchased Ethereum at $100, you explain, well, it really is not a sustainable solution in the future. And because it's at $13 or $3,000, they'll look at you like, what are you talking about? Right? And that's a difficult thing to overcome. So I really try to emphasize people that are 
understand real world problems that have experiences in various sectors. And then I utilize their expertise and kind of highlight and show them where blockchain could be applied that actually move the needle in efficiency and productivity. Well, I guess it all boils down to definitions, doesn't it? Yes. At the end of the day. <laughs> it does. Brian, what do you do outside of working with blockchain and being a global policy director, advisor? And what are your crazy passions outside of work? Yeah, so I really have limited time for passions beyond my three beautiful daughters, but I, I'm a bait maker. So I, what? I, I'm a bait maker. I, I make wooden and uh, plastic lures, fishing lures. You're kidding. So I carve them from just a block of wood and I'll weigh them and paint them and put hooks on them. And I'm not a very good fisherman, but I do enjoy making lures. There's yeah. actually like wooden bait? Well, yeah, you just create them. You create little, you know. Does, just, does it work? Do the fish like them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what a lot of these lures were created with back in the day, right? And oh, um, yeah. it's just become somewhat of a lost art. But I enjoy the hobby because it gets me a little bit of hand activity where I'm whittling down some wood and, and then being able to shape that and just take a project or a blank piece of wood and go from two to three hours, have a, a lure that I can take out and go fishing with. Wow. I have never through. heard that before. I yeah. love it. I love it. And how did you get into that? Not exactly. I think it was because I was bored. I was working for this company like four years ago that required me to do 250 dials a day. <laughs> and so it would automatically dial just every person, right? And this was an IT company that I was providing consultation for them. And this is just the form that they required at one point. It was shortly lived for me because I just, that wasn't my strategic way of bothering people, I guess you would call it. Yeah, just sort of sitting there having to make 250 dials a day, I figured I could do something in between. And and I don't know, I just you grabbed a piece of wood and a knife and, and went from there. And I haven't cut my fingers off yet. And you're, you're like a wooden bait maker. And do you paint it and all of that? Yeah, I, I actually bought airbrushing gear and paint to, to no paint them. And yeah, I'll have to send you one, KJ. I'd oh, that's to too cool. I totally yeah. want to see it. Okay, tell me about your daughters. You said you have three beautiful daughters. I do. I have three daughters, 21, 18, and just about 15 here. It's, uh, August 9th, my youngest. They keep me honest. They've done a, a lot of work uh, over the last 20 years to to kind of get me to be the person I am, right? Yeah. And I'm they're the love of my life. And, you know, I don't know where I would be without just them in my life in general. Oh, that's so special. Well, I'm a daddy's girl. I totally understand that. I know how girls can transform their dads for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. How do people get a hold of you, Brian? Yeah, I am usually on LinkedIn. Sometimes the best way to immediately get a hold of me, um, just Brian W. Doherty, you can look that up. My website is smartledger.solutions. And, you know, we have a way to contact me there as well. You can reach to me at brian at smartledger.solutions. And I'm open to having any type of conversation about utility and blockchain in general. I enjoy it. I'm not going to charge you. And I really enjoy meeting people that are experts in their field and kind of building together these concepts and this education. And I'm always ready to provide as many resources and any information that anybody may come across or may need. That's awesome. Well, I already know some people I'm going to refer to you. 
thank you so much for this. I think this has been an important discussion, but I also, I look to the future of our civilization when we have the integrity of data on the communication channels that are so prolific now, holding people accountable, having the transparency and increasing really accessibility to a better quality of life for others. I mean, that's really what blockchain is about. I didn't even have that until yeah. this conversation. So thank you. Oh, wow. Well, you're most welcome. And it really does come down to this honesty and, and really, like you said, promoting a better world, right? A, a more transparent, a more honest, and a more efficient world that we can rely on what is said and 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 know that it has some velocity of truth and also that we can give people back what they deserve which is their data right and their independence of being a product on the market whether it's social media or some other product and allow them to monetize their data and sell that or not sell that right and i think that's really key is as we move to this data is the new oil era that we give people the rights to own their data and manage that data however they see fit and that is the mic drop and you just gave the tagline for blockchain <laughs> thank you brian thank you kj i really appreciate it yes that's a wrap everyone if you learned something today or laughed go tell someone about this podcast and tell people to go disrupt their markets with the tidbit from this show thank you for listening to disruption interruption where we transform lives change consumer behavior alter economics and never accept the status quo ciao for now because we live in a highly litigious society with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.